2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, welcome everyone. Tonight we're going to talk about WALL-E, the Disney Pixar movie that came out in 2008. Animated film, an hour and 38 minutes. 8.4 on the IMDb, 96% Rotten Tomatoes, and 94% of Google users like it. It's uh, it's a good movie. I really enjoyed it, uh, and uh, we, we hope that you've already seen it. We're going to analyze it from uh, a couple of different perspectives here, and here is the Google description. Oh, and by the way, we're the Last Nighters. My name is Daniel, and Robert is my co-host. And the Google description is Wally, short for Waste Allocation Load Lifter Earth Class, is the last robot left on Earth. He spends his days tidying up the planet, one piece of garbage at a time. But during 700 years, Wally has developed a personality, and he's more than a little lonely. Then he spots Eve, and he, it's a sleek and shapely probe sent back to Earth on a scanning mission. Smitten, Wally embarks on his greatest adventure yet when he follows Eve across the galaxy. Came out in June 27, uh, 2008, director Andrew Stanton, and made half a billion dollars at the box office. Half a billion. That's a pretty good return. I feel like a movie like that would probably make a whole lot more these days. Uh, this is like the height of Pixar's power before it's kind of been watered down with, I don't know, Disney's latest offerings. Although I've heard good things about Coco and other stuff like that, but they've also released a bunch of kind of more mediocre movies lately. But yeah, this is a, I think this is one of Pixar's better works. It's definitely a, a love story that tugs at the old heartstrings. It plays off of loneliness, which I uh, heavily identify with. And um, it also uses a whole bunch of tropes. Um, the setup and the setting is rather interesting. I think that's probably where we're going to spend most of our analysis on. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way, place to start. And uh, so let's go ahead and, and do that. Um, it's set in a world in the, in the future that has been basically destroyed by humans, by mankind, the garbage can. And it, it sets it up in such a way to where you basically have a corporation becoming so large and such a monopoly that they essentially become the government and not only the government, but the government, like a one world government, UN style, but as a corporation and everything, every service, every product is all provided by this company by and large. Meanwhile, it's, it's almost um, like a companion piece to Idiocracy, which came out a couple of years prior to this, where by and large is like a Costco size store in Idiocracy, where it's like a mile long. That's what by and large is in Wally. -E. And so I can kind of see a lot of parallels between the two movies, one being directed more at uh, kids and the other being more directed at uh, maybe the teen audience. Uh, as it were. Yeah. And, you know, if you just want to enjoy this movie, you turn your brain off and you just take, accept the setting and the setup at face value, I think you can really enjoy this movie. But if you start analyzing, you know, would this ever really happen? And I think that's what we should probably get into. Then, I, you know, it falls down. Um, 
the idea that any private company is going to turn into some sort of monopoly. Monopolies only exist where government comes in and uses force to help their cronies out in a given area. Um, by and large, the only way they're going to be a monopoly in all these things is if they are the absolute best at providing every single service that every single consumer wants in every single location. And with market competition, that's just not possible because no one group of people is going to be the best at every single thing and know all that knowledge. There are going to be people all over the world that would be able to compete with, by and large, in other markets that would they'd be better suited to serving different customers. Yeah, not only that, there'd be different price points and different quality levels and, and different strokes for different folks, as it were. And there's a big contradiction in this in this setup. And that is, okay, you've got this monopoly corporation slash government, yet they still feel the need to have billboards and advertising everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. What's that about? Why would they need to? If they're the only game in town, what do they, why would they need to advertise anything? You just go down to your local by and large, or you work at your local by and large, or you go to by and large university and and then, you know, it, it ignores the idea that anybody would be averse to that. In, in, in a modern-day analogy, uh, we have Walmart, and there are many people that shop at Walmart. There are also tons of people that refuse to shop at Walmart on principle because they believe Walmart to be, I don't know, you know, doesn't treat their employees properly or any given reason. You don't need a reason. You can just not like Walmart, and therefore you would support competition of Walmart. So, yeah, the idea that there's just this one monopoly of business and then and then then this, this monopoly of business would somehow be the world's biggest polluter and nobody would care. Nobody would care that their environment's being destroyed. I mean, they don't specifically come out and say that by and large is this one responsible for all this garbage everywhere. But they are making the claim that either people are incompetent or unable to deal with all the garbage. Right. So either by and large is producing all the garbage and they and people are unable to stop it like well, I don't like the way the guy, by and large, is doing all this business, but I can only shop at by and large and only support by and large because nobody else exists. So there's either, you know, either there's some sort of force involved that's preventing other people from from opening up a business, a competing business that is environmentally friendly, or yeah, they just, the the whole idea of this all this garbage. Either people just don't care about it, or they just don't care about it, which seems weird because then they get in a spaceship and leave the planet because it's so polluted. Of course, people would care about the pollution. <laughs> Right. And then by and large has their solution, which is all of these Wally robots going around collecting the garbage and trying to clean it, um, clean up the environment, put everything into cubes and then stack the cubes everywhere. Right. So there's a solution put into place. But yeah, you're right. None of this makes sense economically. Now, like you said, if you put aside all of these, how realistic is this? Uh, even from a theoretical standpoint, it's not realistic at all. But if you put that aside, uh, it is a very endearing story. And so let's talk about that a little bit, the emotional angle, how many tears got jerked in this. And we'll give it a little bit of a rating uh, once we talk about this point for a little bit. All right. So yeah, at, at the heart of this movie is uh, the lonely Wally who has been, yeah, hundreds of years just doing his job and he's developed this kind of personality and he sees this, you know, sleek, white, cr insanely violent robot, <laughs> nonsensically violent. So yeah, let's talk about that for real quick, real quick. So when he first sees Eve, she's on this search Yes, Daniel. She's on this search mission for life, okay? She's searching for life. She goes to a planet. She sees something move. What's her first instinct? To shoot it, not to see if it's alive first. Wouldn't you want to see if it's alive first? <laughs> Makes no sense. But so he meets her. You know, they kind of develop a relationship. He kind of helps her search for life. She finds out what she's looking for. She's looking for a plant. 
he finds a plant, you know, she puts it in inside her and she gets back in the rocket ship and she takes off. And Wally, whose only friend is this little cockroach that eats Twinkies, um, you know, he kind of refuses to leave her, you know, this is his one chance at companionship and love and whatever. So he jumps on board and he rides this rocket ship back to this, you know, spaceship in the sky that's ferrying all the last human beings. But yeah, the um, the love story is very, I don't know, it's just very heartfelt. He, he plays old movies for her. He, he reads old movies, he watches old movies, and he, you know, imitates the, the dancers. And he does all these little human human characteristics of people that are longing for intimacy and companionship. And yeah, it's very effective in my case. How, how did it affect you, Daniel? Yeah, they were definitely working that angle of trying to make him seem like this um, very lonely and sad robot who's just seeking companionship. And he's he sees Hello, Dolly. That's the movie and records the music and the scene where they're holding hands. And then throughout the film, he's constantly like, "Ooh, I want to hold Eve's hand. But now is not the right time where he tries to or uh, she's like um, in her incubation state where she's waiting to be picked up by the rocket, etc. And of course, at the end of the movie, they finally are holding hands. That's what uh, sparks him back to life because he loses his personality when he's uh, nearly destroyed and then rebuilt by Eve. And spoilers, everyone. I mean, I assume you've seen this. You're coming to us for analysis of a movie that that you have seen yourself. Uh, but it, it, it is very much an emotional heartstring tugging movie uh, in that love story concept. And we sort of talked about how the theoretical world in which this is set in really doesn't work economically. Uh, it, it couldn't possibly exist. Um, and so we'll, we'll move on to that in the next kind of section or category, but I'm going to give this a very high uh, number of tears jerked. Uh, we'll say it's out of 10. I'm going to go, this, this is probably a nine tears jerked. Like I welled up a little bit and I'm a fairly emotionless person. Just ask my wife, uh, but I feel it in this movie. So how many tears did this jerk out of you? So this is a nine where you kind of sort of slightly welled up. This is a movie that would be like an eight or a nine for me where I'm just bawling. My eyes would be red. Tears would be streaming down my face. Um, not every time I've seen the movie because I've seen it maybe multiple times. But when I get an emotional in a movie, I am crying full on, full stop, just all out. Um, so yeah, I would say this is like a, an eight for me on the on the cry meter. Number of tears jerked. So yeah, really really strong emotional story for me. All right. Well, and and this just goes to show that value is subjective, really. I mean, my nine is like I sort of welled up, and your eight is like bawling tears. So it certainly does <laughs> yeah. come down to the individual uh, on the uh, what's that called a marginal utility scale in uh, economic terms. <laughs> That's right. My ordinal preference. Indeed. All right. So let's let's move on to the next uh, little area. And I, I, I want to key off on one of the things that you had said where the, the human population is just polluting this planet and there's like a million satellites surrounding it, like blocking out the sun. Um, and why wouldn't anyone care? Like they cared enough to get on this cruise ship to leave across the galaxy, but they didn't care enough to have an alternative provider of services and goods. They didn't care enough to uh, worry about whether the, the world was being destroyed with pollution and all the plant life and all the animal life. Uh, this extinction level event had occurred. Um, and then when they're on the cruise ship, you know, generations and generations go by and they have all of their needs catered to. They're in these hover chairs and they even show a progression of the captains of the ship. And every generation of the captain gets <laughs> like fatter and 
more blobbier looking and, and uh, you know, it's that, that de-evolution that sort of happened in idiocracy. And uh, I read a little bit about the background on this. And I guess uh, Andrew Stanton, when he was developed the concepts for this, he really wanted to make the humans so devolved that you didn't even recognize them anymore. They were just like green gelatinous blobs that maybe had eyes or ears or something like that. Uh, but then he ended up making them more like just large children. And it, it brings to mind uh, the whole, well, wouldn't anyone care that they're physically incapable of doing anything? Wouldn't anyone care that they feel terrible and that they're like 500 pounds? Wouldn't anyone want to be in shape? Uh, you know, why is everyone in this like utopian conformity? Why does nobody care about anything at all uh, other than the telescreen in front of them and uh, anything that they desire just being brought to their hover chair? Yeah, this, this is, this, to me, this plays at the, the essential ignorance of the average environmentalist of economics and human desire. Uh, it, they assume that, well, you know, they value these things. They value a clean environment, and, but they don't trust everybody else to value a clean environment. Like the market, all it does is try to value, serve value to people. So if people value a clean environment, there will be somebody out there trying to clean up the environment going, look at me, clean up the environment. Will you give me some money? I mean, there would be how many different startups that would in, be inventing new ways to recycle or, you know, ship all that garbage to the sun or, you know, whatever. I mean, all kinds of different solutions to this problem of pollution, to the problem of all this garbage everywhere. Right. And then the solution on the on the ship itself is just to throw it out into space, as revealed later in, in the movie. Just to what in space? Just to throw it out into the void of space. Hmm. They smash it right. into, the, into the cubes. You remember when he drops down into the waste chute, just like in Star Wars, Episode 4? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just throwing everything out into space, right? They're just cubing it up and throwing it out, which, which, which makes you wonder where all that stuff is coming from. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're that's... throwing away stuff. There's got to be a source of it. Or else they started out in a much larger ship. <laughs> I mean, what are they eating at this point? I mean, it's been generations and they're out in this ship. Are they just eating like Soylent Green? Is that what those shakes are made out of? Well, I think they've got the Star Trek Next Generation style. Um, what do you call replicator? those? Yeah, the replicators. Could be. But they Could can't be. replicate they plant life, apparently. But they right. can replicate right. food. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And oh, so speaking of that plant, okay, Wally discovers the plant in a refrigerator that he cuts open with his like little arc welder thing. How is a plant living in the refrigerator? Yeah, plants need, I think, a couple of things. They need nitrogen, they need water, and they need sunlight or else plants aren't really going to do too well. So yeah, or whatever else they need in the, uh, that they get out of the ground. I don't know, man, can't tell you. There's a lot of uh, inconsistencies and things that just, just happen and exist. I mean, it is a cartoon, so maybe we're being a little bit too harsh on it for, you know, not being super realistic. It, 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 you know, at its heart, this movie is a love story, and they're just kind of like playing off, you know, some random setting and idea, not necessarily that it's super realistic. So, I mean, if you've ever seen Moana, I mean, that's based on, you know, that there's these giant god creatures that live in the ocean and stuff like that. So, but... This is kind of our bread and butter, so we talk about economics and whatnot, and we'll try and apply it to anything because it is a fallacy. I mean, these things don't don't make sense. Even though the ship is basically your communist utopia, where everybody is given the same thing, robots are at your every beck and call and whim. I mean, it's essentially the Venus Project in space. And if people don't know who what the Venus Project is, um, the guy named Peter Joseph was shilling for it a couple of years back. Um, it's this kind of anarcho-communist utopia where it's Marxism implemented by robots, which is essentially what Wally is. Now, I don't know if the movie is trying to make a comment on what communism does to you by turning you into a fat blob of shit, 
when you have no purpose in your life, when you have nothing to strive for, when all your whims are catered to. But like Daniel said earlier, it doesn't cater to every human preference, to everything. I mean, human, human desire is infinite. And there would be people who would desire to be fit, to be, feel good, to want to exercise, to want to get out and explore instead of just sitting in there and watching their TV shows and whatever. Um, it's, 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 this movie is essentially a caricature of humanity with motivations and preferences stripped out. Right. And a very strong envir- pro-environmentalist message uh, thrown in. Right. But it, it, one that makes no sense. I mean, why would you just put up with all this garbage everywhere? Wouldn't you at some point pick it up? <laughs> Wouldn't you do something? <laughs> come on. It doesn't make any sense. Now, the movie does, when they come back to Earth, then there's a, we get a montage of them getting thin again because, you know, then they actually have to work and do things. I don't know why their robots aren't, aren't doing all the farming for them, but I, that, that didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Like, they got all these robots at their every beck and call on the ship, but then they come back to Earth and they're like, well, get back to work now, I guess. We still have technology to do some work for you. You could, you could get thin in other ways. Are they, is the movie trying to make a, a point that robots waiting on you is bad? Like technology is bad? I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what they're trying to say. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's actually a good point to jump off of because there is a point where they do have robots and computerized systems servicing every single one of their needs. And I'll pose a question to you. At what point, because some of these robots become sentient, right? Like Wally. There's some other rogue robots that are put into a um, almost a psych ward of sorts that Wally inadvertently allows them to escape from. But at what point are they now having sentience doing these jobs against their will? Are they now mm. slaves? And and even before that, you know, Wally, he's still continuing to do his job of compacting trash and building these monuments of cubes of garbage, Borg-like. <laughs> uh, even though he's a chief sentience, he's still choosing to do it. I guess for him, he's just, he doesn't have anything else to do. He's so lonely. He'll just keep, keep on keeping on and scavenge, you know, other broken down wallies to continue doing whatever he's doing. Cause there's really no other option. Right. For yeah. Him. He was a, he was a corpse robber, corpse grave robber of other wallies to keep himself alive. Um, well, before I answer that, I want to, I want to mention just the idea of technology being bad. I mean, you hear that a lot in today's society that people bemoan the ever-present connectedness to technology that everybody has and how it's everywhere and everywhere. Um, Technology allows you to not be digging in the ditch. Technology allows you to have your goals getting taken care of, your preferences taken care of, your needs being met. I mean, it used to be that women would spend all day in the kitchen because they had to in order to cook a meal and wash the clothes because they had to do it on like a washboard. I mean, what a time-saving advice device was a washing machine or a dishwasher or a microwave. These things are time-saving devices that allow you to do other things that you would rather be doing. Um, so the idea that technology is, we're like slaves to technology is, is really rather ridiculous. Technology serves us. Now, maybe when AI comes in and we're pressing all these robots into slavery, <laughs> which happened in like, you know, the Matrix and in this movie, which is an excellent question, Daniel, um, and something I hadn't thought of, uh, if you watch the Animatrix, which is the backstory to the Matrix, there's a whole story about how the robots gain sentience, but then they're pressed into service by the cruel humans, and then it's like this, their emancipation, and then they come back, and then they end up dominating the humans, and then you get into the Matrix. Um, are they being pressed into slavery? Well, they're not being given wages. That certainly seems true. There doesn't seem to be any kind of currency on board this ship um, other than perhaps maybe electricity, but that doesn't seem to be like any kind of currency they could spend. That's just what keeps them going. Like, so like they're being fed and housed, which is essentially slavery. Uh, they don't seem to have any kind of um, choice 
in what they do. Like they've got your cleaner bot and you got your like emergency bots and your chaser bots and your robot police bots and that sort of thing. So they all seem to have some sort of a job. But yeah, they don't seem to have any kind of freedom of any kind. Um, are they slaves? Can you create a slave? Good question. I think if something determines that it's sentient and it has its own autonomy, I think if you further enslave it, then yeah, I think you are a slave lord. Yeah, I mean, this this might become a relevant uh, situation in real life in the next, you know, coming decades here. I don't know. I mean, depending on how soon uh, AI type singularity and sentience is achievable and possible. Right. I mean, right now we create our own sentient creatures by giving birth to them. And, you know, until they're complete fully autonomous sentient creatures that are capable of looking after themselves, we kind of keep them in a sort of slavery type situation where you feed them, you clothe them, they basically do what you tell them to do, essentially. You've met my kids, right? (laughs) Well, your your kid's got a good independent spirit and you, I think you're raising them excellently, but in, in a general sense, you could kind of equate the family life to some sort of a slave situation where you got a, a sentient person taking care of a not quite fully sentient person. But when that person declares their independence and their sentience and their full autonomy, you say, okay, my job is done. And now you are a full adult and you are free to take care of yourself, right? So when robots do that, are you not under the same obligation to say, okay, you're free now. You do what you want. Yeah, so long as you don't become our robot overlords. <laughs> right. In Skynet. You're not like Skynet style murder, murder machines. I think you're under a certain kind of uh, obligation, aren't you? To not be well, a slave lord? Well, I mean, they would, I guess, sort of acquire natural rights at a certain point. And so it would be a negative right, not a positive obligation. Right. You would have the, uh, you'd have the, they would have their own negative rights, which would mean for you not to be a slave lord over them. Not that you have necessarily, you have an obligation not to aggress against them. Yes, but that is still not a positive right. It's not a positive obligation. It's not that you need to provide them with something or do something to them for their benefit, you need to not do something to them. Right. Which is meaning you're not, you would have an obligation. Another word of saying that is to say that you have an obligation to not be an aggressor. Right, right. I mean, the terms get a little fuzzy because technically speaking, you don't have any positive obligations. You only have the, for lack of a better term and to reuse the term, an obligation to not interfere with someone else, to not initiate aggression against them, to not uh, intentionally use force or threats of force or defraud them. And that's really all you got to do. Right, right. I mean, they... we could argue, you know, if you build a robot and you have, you build it out of parts and you bought these parts and you own these parts and then it gains sentience, do you still own it or does it now own itself? I would argue the minute it declares its own autonomy and the fact that it, you know, it, it claims sentience and it can, you know, identify itself in a mirror and it can have a conversation with you and it can grow and learn and everything else that a sentient creature can do that you have, you no longer own that thing. You no longer own that assembly of parts that you put together. All right. So conversely, I'll throw the question back at you. What about the chubby babies in the hover chairs? And they've sort of lost that autonomy and the individuality and the ability to make cognitive decisions or or recognize themselves in a mirror. Do they now? Well, yeah, I mean, they clearly have given up some sort of autonomy in exchange for resources, right? They have voluntarily chosen to, I'm going to be this fat blob of shit and you're going to take care of me like a nanny would. That seems to be the trade that has been made. Now, these people were probably born into this, so they don't know any different. Yeah, and then the the school, they're indoctrinated into it. It says, uh, by and large, is your best friend, which is a good jumping off point, uh, which we can get back to in just a moment, because I know you were about to say something else, but but let's circle it back to this, uh, this concept 
in a moment here. Okay, I've lost my train of thought, so maybe we should just continue. All right, let's just in, do it in, now in the, then. In the, uh, yeah, let's do it now, and uh, we gotta, we got to move it along here. All right, so in recent news, it's come to light that uh, some people are advocating that public schools should disallow or disincentivize children into having best friends. And uh, this woman was recently on Tucker Carlson talking about this. And it sounds like madness to me. And my comment in one of the Facebook groups that I'm in was, not only does government want to be big daddy government, big mommy government, but now your best friend. And that reminded me of this line in Wally, where they say that by and large is your best friend when they're teaching the children in the school on the Axiom ship. Yeah, you wonder where these people get their ideas. It's like Brave New World or Wally. Like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that one. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, in reality, of course, it's a good idea because best friends end up getting people into trouble more often than not. Um, government is your best friend anyway, so I really don't see the purpose of having, you know, real right bond friendships with other people that you would voluntarily associate with. It's probably best that that gets stamped out early. So yeah, um, the earlier you can get to people to realize that uh, authority is your best friend, the better. All right, I don't know where my co-host went, but uh, someone has taken his <laughs> place. <laughs> no, I'm jo- joking, obviously. Uh, in all seriousness, yeah, these are these are monstrous people. Um, friendships that you learn, you try in early life, is all about trying to figure out how to exist in this world. You are practicing for life. You're practicing for long-term pair bonds that come about through the family. I mean, this is just further destruction of the family. It's further destruction of, you know, are we moving into like a, a world where, you know, people, women just drop off their, their fertilized eggs or they're just their regular eggs to a, some sort of a hive hatchery and then men drop off some sperm and then the people are grown and they're put into this board collective. It seems to be that's the way we're going. Um, as an individualist, I strongly, of course, disagree. Um, people need to be left free to pursue relationships as they wish. This is the, the, what kind of horrific thinking brings this about. Uh, um, you guarantee you that this person also supports gay marriage, which is two people voluntarily choosing to be with one another. And Having a best to one friend? <laughs> Having yeah, a best yeah, friend? Having a best friend. So what kind of monster would come in and say, no, this is a bad idea because it makes other people without best friends feel bad or something like that because it's exclusionary. Like, oh, this is my best friend. You're not my best friend. No, we're just all friends. No, people can choose to associate how they wish. And it's great that kids would choose to have a best friend and live life and have that support throughout life. This is utter insanity and nonsense. And uh, I'm interested to hear your take on it. Well, not only that, but so if there's sort of this imposed policy of you must widen your circle of friends, you must be friends with people that you don't particularly like or have anything in common with, it also stunts social uh, social learning, right? Like if it's imposed upon people to be your friend, then you don't have to learn to be a pleasant person. You don't have to learn social skills and how to interact with people uh, and how to develop those things to be a better person who attracts people to them, right? It becomes this crutch that actually stunts the growth of the personality and of the individual. And I, I can't imagine why anyone would advocate for this. I mean, this is, yeah, this is the snowflake culture run amok. This is the participation trophy parenting people. This is saying that, yeah, you don't need to try harder. You don't need to become a pleasant person because everybody has to be your friend. So you don't need to become an actually pleasant person. You have to develop social skills. I, I fear for the people that come out of school with these ideas. Yeah, because and, and, then once they're thrown into the real world, it's like they have no no way to cope with it. Right, and and 
it's often these same type of people who uh, talk poorly of homeschooling and homeschooled kids because, well, you need to have them socialize and learn how to interact with people. Well, now you've got the same, essentially, or potentially the same people saying, oh, well, now we need to stunt their social growth and force them to, uh, you know, interact with people that they may or may not like. And it's just, uh, it's a really strange thing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's we, we can move on from this topic, but I, I just wanted to call that out because it's the height of hypocrisy. Like you were saying, it's, it's likely the same people calling out homeschoolers and also uh, people who are supportive of uh, any, any sex, if that's still a thing, <laughs> uh, uh, being you know, together, being married, being best friends with each other. So it just seems very hypocritical and uh, illogical. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. I, I hope it gets smashed down and smacked down. Like this, this idea is just the worst, dumbest idea ever. I mean, I hope people hear about it, shine it off in the light of day. I mean, you know, sunlight's the best antiseptic. So let people know what their dumb ideas are so we can smack them down and hopefully explain to these people what a terrible idea it is. Because, you know, it's probably born out of some kind of good intention, right? Because you've got like some lonely kids, some Wally type characters sitting in class that nobody likes because he's mean to everybody or whatever. And so he doesn't have a best friend. And so, you know, they encourage all the kids to be nice to him and friend, befriend him anyway, even though he's just a total piece of shit. And yeah, like what's the incentive for that piece of shit kid to ever be not a piece of shit? There isn't one. So he's going to grow up to be a piece of shit. He's going to get out into the, into the real world. And then he's only going to be able to get a job that involves... I don't know, robbing people or being out somewhere where it's really dangerous and something and you don't have to actually talk to anybody. I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but it's a terrible idea and shame on people. <laughs> just, just shame on people. Yeah, I think it's another instance of people getting uh, overly intellectual about something and, and finding a problem that's not there and whatever solution they're trying to implement will have so many downstream effects and consequences seen and unseen that it's uh, just uh, an awful, awful thing that they have this conceit that they can centrally plan because they're an expert, right? Other right. people's voluntary choices, millions of other people's yep. voluntary choices and what the, and expect that the results that they desire are going to be the outcome. And, and it's just, uh, uh, it is a conceit that uh, just ain't so. Just insane hubris, insane idiocy. And insane in the membrane. Insane they see the light. Hopefully they see the light because, yeah, that's a, that's a nightmare. And hopefully this doesn't affect too many, too many young impressional minds. Let's start to uh, wind this down. I wanted to ask you about some of the references to other film and other properties, quotation marks, uh, like the auto character is like Hal from 2001. You've got the voice of Sigourney Weaver, who did the American version of the BBC series Planet Earth, telling uh, the captain, played by Jeff Carlin, about Planet Earth. Uh, so there's all these like interwoven uh call-outs to other things, nods to other things, homages. And I think that those are interesting things to uh, talk about a little bit. Did you notice any on your side? Um, just that it's a very yeah, planned society. Very, I mean, there are some movies back in the 70s and 80s, like Logan's Run and, um, like you said, uh, 2001 with uh, Hal and Otto and other type of things where there's these kind of planned society type situations, centrally planned and whatever. And it's always some science fiction nightmare movie where there's the main individualist type character that's trying to break out and escape from it. Um, in Logan's Run, it's this perfectly planned society where once you turn like a certain age, I think it's like 25 or something like that or 30 or whatever it is, and then they kill you. And in this movie, yeah, it's a very nightmare scenario. You wouldn't want to be living on this ship, even though you're getting all your you're catered to. But yeah, you you I can't imagine that everybody's happy. I mean, there is one kind of like love story. There's 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 a one giant fat blob guy and a one giant fat blob woman who meet when they kind of like bump into each other, and they're almost like, oh, 
other human beings exist on this boat. Oh, instead of just because they'll show uh, it's kind of a commentary on like cell phone type culture people that well, they'll be sitting right next to each other, but they'll be talking to each other through the device. And I've experienced that. I've had people like in the same party, they'll be texting each other and not necessarily because they're texting anything secretive that they wouldn't want anybody to hear, but just because that's the custom way that they're used to talking to each other and they prefer it as opposed to, you know, like actual face-to-face communication, like makes them uncomfortable. So yeah, it's, it's kind of a nightmare scenario. It's, um, I think it has a few decent things to say about loneliness and friendship and finding love. Um, and just, yeah, the nightmare scenario of having this sort of planned economy. So this, this sort of planned existence, um, would be, would be terrible. Yeah. I, like, I tend, um, to, tend to agree with you. Well, hang on. Uh, sorry. I just had one more thought. Um, in Peter Joseph's, um, Venus project, that's essentially what it is. It's, it's robots catering to each other. Like I said before, and that's what this situation is here. Um, but like I said, it doesn't account for all human desire. Um, in Joseph's situation, he wanted to use surveys to understand what people wanted and then having the resources, it was like he called it a resource-based economy because all the resources get shared and divided among all according to everybody's needs. So you, what you would do is you would fill out a survey and then the, you know, the block, the one pound of cheese or whatever you're allotted or whatever you want would arrive to you, served to you by like a robot drone or whatever. The problem with that is, all of human desires aren't going to exist on any given survey. And as soon as you answer that survey, it's wrong. As soon as you write down a pound of cheese on the survey, well, maybe you wanted two pounds of cheese, or maybe you wanted a different kind of cheese that doesn't exist because there's no market mechanism that would incentivize somebody to create that given kind of cheese. You're not going to get the insane variety. I mean, it's why when, who was it, like Boris Yeltsin or Mikhail Gorbachev came over, I think it was Boris Yeltsin, came over to the United States and went, walked into a, just the average supermarket. He was like, no way, this has got to be a setup. No way this exists, all this bountiful variety and all these different stuff. In communism, we got one kind of cheese, and we got one kind of beans, and we got one kind of this, one kind of that, and we don't have a whole lot of it. In America, with all this free market activity, you have all these different desires being catered to, all these beautiful, wonderful choices to be made. And you just don't get that with the planned economy. Sorry. Yeah, and jumping off on that point, um, if you're filling out a survey, not only is it out of date the moment you uh, would submit it because your situation might change and, and something else, your taste might change or something else coming in might alter what you want. But what would prevent you from putting way more than you actually need and who would verify what you legitimately need versus not? I mean, everyone would be incentivized to put as much down as possible. And the best quality product as possible. The one thing that's awesome about markets and prices is that there's a different price point for all kinds of different consumers. So somebody might value two pounds of like regular cheese over six ounces of this fancy kind of cheese. Everybody's just going to pick, well, I'm going to want 10 pounds of this fancy cheese. So you would yeah. run out of shortages of that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something that uh, could not, would not work. And uh, a lot of people make the argument that, um, you know, this guy, Mises, he was an economist. He confronted the socialist with an economic calculation problem. And one of them tried to come back with, well, we'll just have computers solve for this. And, you know, sure, we have supercomputers that are getting better and better all the time. But even if you could even approximate the myriad of millions of interactions between voluntary choices happening constantly throughout the world, even if you could approach that level of uh, capacity of computation, why not just let people do it? <laughs> yeah. Like, why, why not just use the real thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, people... I mean, the great Misesian insight is right, is that prices is information, right? I mean, so, and human beings just generate this information just as a matter of course, like you said, through all their 
countless voluntary interactions. So you have this wonderful resource, which is the market, which is all these prices for values and goods. Why would you go to all this work just to try and maybe kind of make a worse replica of it? It doesn't just let it happen as it is. You're going to get a better, more accurate. So it's 100% accurate. I mean, if you get rid of all the government influence and all that kind of bullshit, you'd have a perfect, you know, free market. You would have perfect prices. But yeah, why, why even bother going to all that effort to create something that would only be a pale imitation of it? All right, sense. so let's uh, let's kick the uh, economics into the dustbin here and move on to our overall impression of the film and our rating, which is uh, still going to be just out of ten, one decimal point deep. I'll start with you. Okay, well, yeah, I think it depends. I could I could review this movie a number of ways. I mean, if you're talking about just pure romance enjoyment, love story, um, you know, lonely robot seeks friendship and gains friendship and tells a fun story, then this movie is, you know, like a high eight, like an 8.6, 8.7 type situation. If you want to get into, well, for, for Robert, you know, the, the economics analyst type person, then this movie is more along, you know, like a, a four or a five. Um, every movie, almost most, most Hollywood movies are going to have all kinds of economic fallacies. It's really hard for somebody thinking economically to watch m- many movies that are set in some sort of dystopian situation or whatever like that. Um, outside of something like a 1984 where, you know, the enemy is a government. I mean, everybody, I think, can foresee and see that as being a terrible thing and what kind of a nightmare scenario that would be. But in a situation like Wally, where the where the economic situation of the setting is so ridiculous that you really have to turn your brain off, then and yeah, this movie's more like a four or a five in that terms. Factoring in the the love story and whatnot, but then you're just like, well, I just can't get past. If you can get past the economic fallacies, then I think you can really enjoy it in terms of the the heart and the love story. Just taking the you know the setting as a as for what it is. So overall, I'm going to say. 7.2. Overall, 7.2. Taken in, I'll count off of that. All right, 7.2 from Robert. So my overall, you're right, it does have many different uh, angles at which you can look at this thing. I mean, from the love story and the, the lonely robot finds companionship and grows a relationship with someone is very heartwarming and heart-wrenching because uh, he sacrifices himself to help her satisfy her mission, which results in them coming back to Earth. And so you have that, uh, that hero and that sacrifice for someone else. Uh, for a greater, you know, satisfaction, right? To to further something along bigger than themselves, and and that has a, certainly an emotional appeal to it. Uh, but there are so many economic fallacies. There is so much of a, a pro-environmentalist message. And don't get me wrong, I, I love the planet Earth, and I I love having a cleanish environment. Um, but many of the problems that that we see are not going to be solved by the uh, solutions posed or proposed by uh, green policies, right? Uh, there, most pollution is the result of government and not allowing uh, markets to work, not having private property, and not having uh, protections for private property in a market system that would allow people to uh, seek damages or uh, restitution for people polluting or destroying their own property. And uh, let alone the biggest polluter on the planet, which is the military. Uh, and that's something that is a quick Google search away from just about anyone. But uh, the biggest users of fuel and resources and creators of garbage and pollution is militaries around the world. And they are, of course, extensions of government. So all told... Not, not, not to mention all the things they just outright destroy, right? <laughs> right, right. Bombs, bu- buildings and bombs, and those don't just make beautiful fields. They, they make rubble piles. <laughs> 
Right. And then let alone, and, and I know this is supposed to be an overview of Wally, but uh, a lot of those green policies would impact the poorest people on the planet, like those living on the margins the most, because they use more polluting type things to satisfy their daily needs, right? Cooking, having water, you know, being able to survive. And if a lot of those things were eliminated uh, or legislated out of possibility, then you potentially have millions of people's lives at risk. And so that's often an unseen uh, consequence of if these policies were put into place. So anyway, back to Wally, which is a lovely uh, uh, heartwarming story, uh, children's story. And my, my kids like this movie uh, a lot. Um, for, for me, I have a, a bit of a nostalgia for it. And so I'm going to give it a pretty high score, uh, a 9.0 on wow. the, the Richter scale, because I'm looking past all of the problems with it and just at the story, uh, because it, you know, it does give us plenty to talk about and, and we could go on for probably another hour easily, but I think sure. we should wind this one down here. So this has been our episode on Wally, and you can find uh, our other reviews at lastnighters.com and also at the uh, YouTube channel. Uh, so subscribe, like, share, and all that good business. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. I've been Daniel and my co-host is Robert. Take care, everybody.